Our Bible reading this morning is from 1 Peter, chapter 2, reading from verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 7. If you're using one of the church Bibles, that's on page 1218. Page 1218, 1 Peter 2, beginning at verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. For it is commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. But how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure it? But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands, like Sarah who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Morning, everybody. Really good to see you. Well done for getting up slightly earlier today. We're, uh, we're in 1 Peter. And um, if you remember, this whole section a few weeks ago began with these words in verse 12. Live such good lives among the pagans... That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And we concluded that Christians shouldn't withdraw, nor should they kind of hide uh, in this kind of Christian subculture, shouldn't always uh, rebel, shouldn't conform. Rather, we should live good lives that lead to God's glory and also lives that draw people to Christ. Our simple good deeds are full of glorious potential. And one day when Christ returns in the great congregation of worshippers, there are going to be many people 
who point back to a simple good deed done in the name of Jesus as instrumental in their coming to faith. That's the kind of broad principle, and over the past few weeks, including this week, we've been applying it into specific scenarios. And in each scenario, we've, we've come across a common idea. It's the idea of placing ourselves under, of laying ourselves down, um, or sometimes using the word submitting. Naturally, um, if you're like me, we want to place ourselves on top. We want to be above, uh, looking down in judgment or mockery of any human authority. But the good life that leads to conversions and leads to glory to God involves placing ourselves under, laying ourselves down. Do remember, um, I think it's important to say, while we're talking about the subject of submission, um, we did conclude in verse 17 of chapter 2 that there is a kind of hierarchy of our obligation. So God first, family of believers second, uh, all people and emperor third. Normally we want to keep all of those four plants watered, but there are going to be some times where uh, they come, those obligations come into direct conflict, in which case we water the most important plant first. So as we talk about work and home life this morning, bear in mind there are going to be times where we don't submit because of that hierarchy of obligation. As I say, this week we're thinking about how Christians should live at work and at home. Maybe you find yourselves in a bit of a, a rut in one or both of those areas. Seems to be a common experience that from time to time we end up in a, a period of plateau in those areas. But these verses are full of significance and purpose that will breathe new life into our work and home life. At work and at home, we can live in such a way that brings great glory to God and draws people to Christ. There's one key ingredient that I want us to spot before we jump into these areas. Reverent fear of God. This was first mentioned back in chapter 1, verse 17. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Then in chapter 2, verse 17, it said, fear God. And in our reading today, verse 18, in reverent fear of God. And then again in chapter 3, verse 1 and verse 7, in the same way. That's referring again to this reverent fear as well. We're going to revisit this, but reverent fear of God means that whatever human authorities exist, we place ourselves under God first. We recognize that he is far above every other power and we will place ourselves under his will. We will place ourselves under his word. We will place ourselves under his gospel. We're going to bow in reverential awe. What are the consequences of this attitude? What does reverent fear lead to? Two things. Firstly, reverent fear of God leads to a commendable work life. Uh, you can follow along in your Bibles if you like. Verse 18. Slaves, in reverent fear of God, submit yourselves to your masters 
not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I want us to notice, first of all, and it's really important to know this, that slavery is not condoned either in these verses or in the Bible generally. It's, it is true that you won't find a specific verse that says outright slavery is evil. Um, some people will explain that by pointing to the fact that slavery back then was different to what we might think of as slavery in recent history. They'll point out that back then uh, it wasn't race-based. They'll point out that back then around an up or up to a third of the Roman Empire were employed as slaves, including many doctors and accountants. These people are trying to make the point that slavery back then wasn't quite so bad, really. But there's a better reason, I think, why we don't find a verse in the Bible saying directly slavery is evil. It's because the Bible abolishes slavery not from the top down, but from the inside out. So from start to finish, the Bible is one long story of liberation from slavery to freedom. All the, all the way at the start, we have the principles on page one of human equality and dignity. Humanity made in God's image. Um, much later on, when Paul sends a runaway slave back, he says to his master, uh, receive him no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. And then uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, um, Paul says again uh, to slaves, if you can gain your freedom, do so. So um, in history, Christians have got this horribly wrong sometimes. But the Bible gives all the ammunition required so that as Christians grew in political influence, we could explode the evil of slavery. The Bible does not condone it whatsoever. However, when Peter wrote the words that we're reading this morning, all of that was kind of a long way off in the future. As I say, up to a third of the population were slaves without much hope of release. Christian influence on governments to uh, affect change was virtually zero. So what was Peter going to do? Should he ignore uh, the slaves that were in the churches that he was writing to? Should he not speak to them in his letter? That's what other philosophers uh, of his age would have done. Aristotle and others would only ever address men because they believed that slaves and women were lesser beings. No, Peter speaks directly to slaves in this letter because he values them as equals and he knows that God wants to speak to them. And God wants to speak to us as well. We're not slaves, but many of us are employees with bosses. And there are some differences, obviously. You have the freedom to switch jobs if you have an abusive boss. And, and you absolutely should if that's the case. But in the normal course of things... The principles of these verses apply pretty directly to the world of work. The headline here is, submit to your bosses, even if they're harsh. 
And we touched on this last week um, when we looked at verses 21 to 25. Apologies if you really want us to dive back into those verses. Um, If you want to hear more about verse 21 to 25, hop online and listen to the sermon from last time. As Christ bore our sins and endured suffering without retaliating and threatening, so we should not resort to retaliation or threats either. Let's say you've refused to distort the numbers or you've shown integrity by refusing to lie, even if it would have made your company look good. And then your boss rebukes you, looks down on you or passes over you uh, for uh, promotion. Your blood might boil at the injustice of it, but following Christ's example means passing judgment onto a higher court. It means saying, condemning, judging, that's above my pay grade. That is God's job. Instead of responding with uh, retaliation and, and threats and judgment, I'm going to look forward to the day where God will right every single wrong. Instead of placing ourselves above our bosses in judgment and criticism constantly, we're going to place ourselves under in submission. Practically, I think this means that we won't join in with the sort of constant criticism that we see all the time behind the boss's back. And we're generally going to be on their side rather than being a constant headache. Verses 19 and 20 give us a few more details about this. Here we see that submitting to bosses means making sure that if they're going to give you a hard time, it had better be for the right reason. Think of it this way. If you've got a harsh boss, you're going to be badly treated whatever you do, whether you're a good employee or a bad one. So with a harsh boss, there's, there's not really that much motivation to do good. If your boss is going to be harsh either way, then there's not that much reason to turn up on time. There's not that much reason to meet deadlines. You're going to suffer either way, and your boss certainly isn't going to commend you. But if, in the words of verse 19, you are conscious of God, if you work with a kind of reverential fear of the Lord, then it does matter whether you're a good employee or a bad one. Because whoever your earthly boss is, the Lord is the one you ultimately work for. Bearing up and enduring as a good employee even under a harsh boss, is commendable before God. They might not notice if you're doing a good job, but God notices and he smiles. Why? Why does God smile if he sees us enduring and being a good employee, even under a harsh boss? Because it's yet another example of what we read at the start in verse 12. Living a good life among the people that's going to bring glory to God and draw people to Christ. When your work life is motivated by this sense of reverential fear of God rather than fear of man, you are a powerful witness to your colleagues. I hope you do actually speak to your colleagues about Christ. Um, That would be great. 
But don't underestimate the impact of simply living a good life among them, simply being a good employee, one who fears the Lord. I think part of this witness might mean working hard even when no one's watching. I think it might mean carrying responsibility well, even uh, without praise. And I think it certainly means from these verses, enduring through hard times in your company, even when others are crumbling. And all of this is possible, however bad your boss is, if you are conscious that God is the one you are putting your hope in. He is the ultimate one that you are working for. Here's the summary. Reverential fear of God leads to a commendable work life because we submit to bosses and we attempt to be good employees. So that's the the first result of a reverent fear of God. Now let's look at the, the second one. Reverent fear of God leads to an attractive home life. And actually, I suppose this whole section really is about home life because um, the word for slaves in verse 18, it refers to household servants. This whole thing is about living as God's people at home. But now we're turning to wives and husbands. And the first thing I want us to see is that God places the same obligation on wives that he does on husbands. Both are called to lay themselves down and to place themselves under in reverent fear of God. The Bible never exalts men over women. The Bible never exalts husbands over wives. The Bible constantly humbles both under Christ. Bear with me on this. I want you to see it. In verse 1, we read, wives, in the same way, submit, to, submit yourselves to your own husbands. As I mentioned, in the same way refers back to verse 18, in reverent fear of God. So a wife's ultimate obligation is to bow in awe before the Lord. She submits herself first and foremost to him, to his word, to his will, to his gospel. And then only out of that relationship, she then submits, um, she lays herself down by submitting to her husband. And we're going to see exactly what that means in a minute. But first, see how the same obligation is placed on the husband in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. And again, once again, in the same way, it speaks of this reverent fear of God. The husband isn't the head of the household. He just isn't. God is. And in the same way, this reverent fear of God leads a husband to lay himself down, to place himself under. The wife, as we said, lays herself down by submitting The husband lays himself down by honouring and lifting his wife up. He should be considerate, lifting her needs above his own. And he should respect her, lifting her up to receive greater honour. The word for respect there, incidentally, 
It's the same word that's used to describe believers' attitude to the Roman emperor. Um, So draw whatever conclusions you want from that about how we should uh, treat our wives. Um, So I want you to see, both husbands and wives, they're called to lay themselves down out of reverential fear of God. So there's absolutely no oppressive patriarchy here. The same obligation is placed on both. The Bible humbles both men and women under Christ. The Bible humbles both husbands and wives under Christ. Marriage shouldn't be a constant wrestle for power, but rather a competition who can lay themselves down lower. So now we're going to consider the specifics. Um, we're going to start with, uh, with wives, and I must confess my jealousy because you're given an awful lot more attention in these verses than we are. Uh, you get six verses, husbands only get one. Um, but seriously, bear in, bearing in mind that in this uh, context, in this time, secular household codes would have only been addressed to men. So the very fact that Peter is speaking to women uh, in such detail is evidence um, of just being extremely countercultural. Verses 1 and 2, they describe a situation where the wife is a Christian, but the husband isn't. And from speaking to women during the week, it's important not to pass over just how challenging and painful a scenario this can be. The question, what does submission to a non-Christian husband look like, it's not an easy one to answer. It's slightly easier at the extremes. Um, every marriage is different. Um, some uh, Christian wives with un- non-Christian husbands, their non-Christian husbands are going to be very supportive. They're quite happy for you to come to church. They're quite happy for you to give to the church. They're quite happy for you to open the, the Bible and read it to your kids. Uh, in, in such scenarios, submission is not going to look that different to in a Christian household. At the opposite extreme, some husbands are abusive. And in that scenario, again, it's really important to say the question of submission doesn't apply. Speak to someone that you trust and get out of there. The answer is really easy at the extremes, but but most marriages, where there's one Christian and one non-Christian, it falls somewhere in the middle. And if you're looking for a kind of simplistic, concrete answer of what submission looks like for you in these verses, you're not going to get it. But these verses do provide a wonderful principle for you to apply and work through. Possibly, if you, um, if you know a kind of an older Christian woman that you look up to, you can maybe speak this through with her. And of course, these verses do also apply to wives with Christian husbands. And here's the big idea. Here's the big principle. Be a beautiful witness. Be a beautiful witness. Verse 1. If any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words, by the behavior of their wives, when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. This isn't saying, again, that you shouldn't speak about Jesus. I hope you do. Rather, in situations where they've said no to the message, where they've shut their ears and said, I don't want to hear any more, don't give up. 
because your actions can be immensely powerful, especially when you live a life that is motivated by reverence to God and is full of shining purity. And here's where the beauty comes in. And please don't misunderstand verse 3. God isn't enforcing some kind of dour, drab dress code where everyone shows up to church on a Sunday morning dressed in sackcloth. Um, That's not the idea here. Notice that this verse doesn't say, don't wear elaborate hairstyles, gold jewelry, or fine clothes. The point is far deeper than that. Wear whatever you want. But those things shouldn't be where your beauty comes from. You can have all that pretty stuff and still be a wart for the gospel. Being a beautiful witness is about the unfading beauty of the inner self. Um, This is about the purity and reverence from verse 2. Reverence reverence to God, that is. But verse 4 also mentions a gentle and quiet spirit. This is of great worth to God. It's beautiful because it mirrors the spirit of Christ. On the cross, Jesus chose gentleness rather than retaliation. He chose quietness and peace rather than threats. And I think this helps answer the question of what submission looks like to a non-Christian husband, especially to a non-Christian husband. There are going to be things that you disagree about. Maybe it's about how much time you spend at church. Maybe it's about how much you give to church. Maybe it's about how much time you have the Bible open. Yes, talk all of that through. But when that conversation turns into a fight, let your actions do the persuading. More than one husband in this building has been won over by their wives, not through persuasive arguments, but through a beautiful witness in their behavior. He, he might well notice your smile when you come back from church. He might well notice that uh, as you're spending more time in the Word, you are growing in joy, in love, in hope, and peace. And those things are really attractive. So keep going in that. Being a beautiful witness is also illustrated if you look down at verses 5 and 6. We don't have time to look into the story of Abraham and Sarah in detail. But for her, in her context, submission meant calling her husband Lord. And that's why you'll sometimes see Mel bowing down and referring to me as Lord Andrew. (laughs) You know I'm kidding. Verse 6, it doesn't say you are her daughters if you also call your husband's Lord. No. Following Sarah's example here means doing what is right and not giving in to fear. Sarah and Abraham, they were given a glorious promise and purpose. God would bless the whole world through their family. But when Sarah woke up in the morning and looked to who was lying next to her in bed, she would see exactly what all you wives see, a often incompetent always imperfect, weak man. And the thought of following him through all the trials they would face, carrying this great purpose from God, fear would be a very natural response. And the idea, seriously, of 
of following the lead of your husband, especially if they're not a Christian, can be very worrying, I'm sure. But Sarah's hope wasn't in her husband. Sarah's hope, verse 5, was in God. She knew that her security, blessing, and future weren't in her husband's hands. They were in God's hands. And even the most incompetent, imperfect husband cannot get in the way of God's good purposes for Sarah or for you. When we put our hope in the God who is really in charge, submission becomes just a bit easier. So wives, here's what God's word says to you, to you this morning. Lay yourselves down by submitting as a beautiful witness who puts her hope in God. And husbands, out of reverent fear of God, we must lay ourselves down too. And one very concrete way that we're going to do this this morning is uh, by being content with just one verse and not a lot of time um, compared to what we've spent on, on, uh, on the wives. I've already pointed out that Uh, when we look at verse 7, in the same way ties this command to a reverent fear of God that leads to laying ourselves down. Wives do this by submitting, husbands do it by honouring. A husband who fears the Lord is going to be considerate with his wife. Are there ways that you should be considering your wife's needs above your own? I'll be honest, when I get back from work, All I want to do is sit down on the sofa, um, especially if I've got a meeting later in the evening. But if I'm going to be considerate to Mel, I'm I'm almost never going to do that. If I'm being considerate to Mel's needs, if I'm aware that she's been looking after our boy Josiah all day, I'm going to try and play with him or take him for a walk, or I'm going to put him in his high chair next to me as as I cook dinner. I don't always succeed in that, but if I'm being considerate, that's what I'm going to do. And that's the attitude we all should have. Be considerate of your wife in your use of time, in your use of words, in your uh, intimate times together, in your gifts, in your acts of service. Be considerate to her. Lift her needs above yours. And a husband who fears God will respect his wife. Verse 7 describes uh, a wife as the weaker partner. This doesn't mean she's lesser in any way. Of course, um, husbands, we know this. She is just as intelligent. She is just as spiritual, just as valuable. This only means that generally women are physically weaker. But we shouldn't use this as an excuse to look down on women in general, or on wives. They are our equals in God's gift of life, made in his image with equal worth and value. Women are our equals in God's gift of new life. Um, In the words of Galatians, when it comes to our status in the family of God, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Let's respect and honour 
our wives. Let's compete with them. Who can lay ourselves down lower? Let's respect and honour our wives, indeed all women, not speaking down to them or mansplaining, if you know what that word means. Instead, um, asking their advice. That's a great way to honour women. Asking their advice and trusting their wisdom. What a great way to honour your wife. And in case you don't need, uh, in case you need more motivation, the end of verse seven, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. If you want your prayers to be heard, respect your wife. Um, This is repeated in verse 12, actually. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. If we want our prayers to be heard, well, let's do this. In conclusion, a a reverent fear of God, it leads to commendable work life and attractive home life. This is the sort of life that's going to bring glory to God. This is the sort of life that's going to draw people to Christ. So do you have this attitude? Do you have this reverent fear of God? Let me share with you one of my fears. One of my fears is snorkeling or or diving on a coral reef. Um, that bit's fine. Like the water's clear, you can see all the fish, all the coral, and then you, you swim out a little bit further and there is an, an edge, a shelf. And as you swim out over the shelf, it just drops down beneath you and it's dark and it's deep and it's vast, this enormous ocean below and in front and behind and around you. And, and, and even the thought of that terrifies me. If you don't have this sense of reverent fear of God, could it be that you're still just splashing around in the shallows? Could it be that you're content with a small God that just is there and that's about the only impact? Could it be that you're content with a small God that is just maybe even there on a Sunday but doesn't have any impact in the rest of your week? Swim out further. Swim out into the deep. Consider the God presented in his word. Consider the God demonstrated on on the cross. A God who will not sweep even the tiniest sin under the carpet, but in love will make sure that judgment happens. A God who will come down in love and take judgment on himself. A God who takes sin so seriously that his son would even die as a result of it. Consider this God, swim out into the deep, spend time in his word and get to know this God and you will find a vastness and a depth that is awesome. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that you would give us this reverent sense of fear, this, this awe that wants to, that can do nothing other than bow before you. Father, we pray that you would help us to swim out into the deep and see more of your greatness. And we pray that this would work itself out, both at work, at home, and in every other aspect of our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As the